0: Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Revolution, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. Here's Pastor Nick. And if they were struck,
1: they would be struck on the back not in the face. So Paul understandably is upset by this. Who wouldn't be upset by something like this? And he raises his voice, and he shouts at the high priest. He attacks him with his words and says, God will strike you. Now I imagine Paul realized right away that he had made a mistake by doing this, by reacting this way. Here's this dream opportunity, and now it's beginning to slip away, and he kind of has himself to blame for it. Let's continue in verse four. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know brothers that he was the high priest for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And immediately Paul apologizes for what he did. He says, guys, I didn't realize it was the high priest. You're right. I should not have spoken in that way to him. I should have been more respectful. You're absolutely right. Because of his hot tempered reaction This opportunity, which he's been waiting a lifetime for, this opportunity to be heard by the Sanhedrin as he talks about Jesus, it is quickly slipping away. Verse six, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out in the councils, brother, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So... But here's Paul, he realizes at this point there's no way that he's going to get an honest hearing by these people. So he decides to kind of cut his losses and say, you know what, I need to do something to save myself before this council turns on me and tears me to pieces. So he notices that half the council are Pharisees, half are Sadducees. These are kind of the two main divisions in Judaism at that time. The Pharisees, despite their legalistic attitudes, which Jesus often addressed when he spoke to them, The Pharisees were kind of, they're kind of good guys, you know. I mean, they were the Bible believers of that day. They were a reform movement. They believed the Bible. They wanted to live according to what the Bible said. They took the Bible seriously. The Sadducees, on the other hand, They did not take the Bible seriously. They didn't take the Bible literally. They didn't believe in anything uh, supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. And certainly they did not believe in heaven. They didn't believe in hell. They didn't believe in judgment day. And they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. They believed that all that really matters is to be a good person in this life because as they said, there is no life after death. So Paul was absolutely accurate in what he said. He said, it is in regard to the matter of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. That was true. He was on trial because of his belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But what he's doing here is a very clever way of getting out of a very difficult situation. And it worked. Verse 9. So a big fight breaks out between the members of the Sanhedrin. Things start to get violent. Once again, the Roman commander has to extract Paul from the situation in order to save his life. And your heart kind of has to go out to this Roman commander, right? Here he is rescuing Paul for the third time now. And they take him back to the barracks, the military barracks, and they're gonna figure out, okay, what do we do with this guy next? And they place him in a holding cell for the time being. Now, if you're Paul... How do you think you're feeling right now? You're probably more discouraged, more disappointed than you've ever been at any other point in your entire life. In fact, we know that he is discouraged because it tells us that in the very next verse. Imagine how discouraged you would be if you were in Paul's shoes. Paul has lived the past 20 years of his life hoping for this opportunity. And he finally gets the opportunity. Surely for years he thought, if only I could be the one to tell, tell the Jewish people about Jesus. If, because I know the right way to present it. I know the right language to use so that they'll receive it. If only I could speak to the Jewish people about Jesus, they would surely receive it. If only I could speak to the Jewish leaders, the people who know the scriptures, I could show them. They would see that Jesus is the answer to all the riddles. And then he gets the opportunity, and it blows up right in his face, two times in a row. Nothing worked out the way that he had hoped it would. It must have been incredibly disappointing. And to make matters worse, there's the sense in which it's actually kind of his fault, right? It's kind of his fault that it turned out this way. I mean, you got to think, Paul, that kind of thing where you torture yourself afterwards thinking, if only I wouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. It, why did I have to mention the Gentiles when I was talking to that group? I should have known better. I should have just talked to them about Jesus and went him over to Jesus, and then we could deal with the whole Gentile thing later on. Why did I have to bring up the word Gentiles? Or, or in the Sanhedrin, if only I would have just not reacted the way that I reacted. Yeah, the guy hit me in the face, but, but they also hit Jesus and, and he didn't react that way. He didn't revile in return when he was struck. Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. If only I wouldn't have reacted the way that I reacted. If only I wouldn't have lost my cool. If only I would have just taken it, I would have been able to even be, speak to them more powerfully about Jesus and the radical difference that he makes in your life. Do you know how deeply Paul wanted this? He wanted it so deeply that in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, I tell you the truth, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because of the Jewish people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Messiah. Deep anguish, great sorrow, unceasing anguish. He was constantly burdened by this it was something that bothered him and and so much so was he burdened by this that he said there in verse 3 of Romans chapter 9 he says for I wish if only I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh the Israelites This is like a loving parent. How many of you parents know exactly what this is like? Your child's sick and you just are overwhelmed with the feeling, if only I could be the one who is sick. If only I could take that from them and I would be sick if it meant that they could be well. Paul is saying, I wish that I could be accursed so that they could be saved. That's how much I care about them. That's how much I love them. I would go to hell if it would mean that they could go to heaven. You see, that's the true heart of love, isn't it? Wanting the best for the other person, even at the cost of suffering yourself. You see, this was something he wanted so badly, but when he got the opportunity, it all fell apart. And there was a sense in which it was kind of his fault. Try to imagine just how disappointed he was, just how discouraged he must have been sitting there alone in a holding cell in the Roman barracks. Lost opportunities, shattered dreams, a sense of guilt. If only I would have done that differently. If only I wouldn't have said that, if only I wouldn't have reacted that way. Any, does that sound familiar to any of you? Have you ever had a time when you felt that same way? I'll tell you this: Discouragement is something that touches us all. So let's talk a moment about what discouragement does in our lives. Howard Hendricks, who's a professor uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary, he describes discouragement in a very gripping way. Here's what he says about discouragement. He says, discouragement is the anesthetic that the devil uses on a person just before he reaches in and carves out his heart. Uh, another writer says this, hopelessness and discouragement are the two thumbs on the throat of the world which are slowly choking people to death. Discouragement Precedes destruction. See, this is what discouragement does in our lives. Discouragement precedes or precedes destruction. No one has ever come up to me and said, I'm so encouraged about my marriage, I'm going to get a divorce, right? No one ever says, I'm so encouraged about how well I'm doing in school that I'm thinking of dropping out. I'm so encouraged about how, how well things are going at work that I'm thinking of resigning and quitting, Every person who has given up, every venture that has failed, and certainly every person who has committed suicide or thought about suicide, they share one common emotion, and that emotion is discouragement. Discouragement is universal in the sense that it touches every person from time to time. Furthermore, discouragement is repeating, in the sense that it happens more than once. In fact, it happens with some degree of regularity. Uh, third, thirdly, uh, discouragement is contagious. It easily spreads from one person to another. Furthermore, though, discouragement is dangerous. In fact, discouragement is so dangerous that it can even be deadly. This is why we cannot afford to let ourselves remain or wallow in a state of discouragement. We cannot afford to stay in a state of discouragement. We must fight against it. Think about Moses, a great leader, a great man of God, someone used by God to do amazing things, wonderful things, to do the work of God. But yet at one time in his life, he was so discouraged He felt like such a failure. He felt so alone that he asked God seriously to please just kill him. The people he was trying to lead were constantly grumbling. They were constantly complaining. They were perpetually unhappy and they were always taking it out on Moses. And Moses became so discouraged that in Numbers chapter 11, he asked God to please just let him die. Or how about Elijah? Elijah had been greatly used by God. But there came a time in his life where he felt that he was all alone, that he had failed as as a prophet, that he felt that everyone was against him and no one would care if he was gone at all. He was so discouraged that he told God, I want to die, please take me now. Hey, Pastor Nick here. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in just a moment, but I want to take the opportunity to personally invite you to join us this Christmas Eve, December 24th at Whitefields Community Church for one of our three Christmas Eve services. The services will be at 3 p.m., 4.30, and 6 p.m. We'll have a choir, special Christmas music, and a message about the Incarnation, how God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ in order to save us. It's good news, and we can't wait to see you This Christmas Eve, 3 o'clock, 4.30, or 6 o'clock, bring a friend. More information is available on our website, whitefieldschurch.com. Merry Christmas. David, Israel's greatest king, the man who stood toe-to-toe with Goliath and won. The writer of the Psalms on several occasions, he says that he was so discouraged that he just wanted to die. See, discouragement touches us all, but if we linger in a state of discouragement, it can be extremely costly. It saps energy. It saps vision. It hurts our families. It chokes our faith, and it ruins our lives. Discouragement kills. Think of discouragement as your faith being choked. It's a serious thing. You don't leave that to itself. It will destroy you. So now, after we've talked about that, let's talk about the difference that hope makes. What is the difference that hope makes? Hope is a forward-facing confidence. Hope is a forward-facing confidence. Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Because we hope, therefore we are very bold. See, that's the result. When you have hope, it liberates you from the prison of your past mistakes. When you have hope, it motivates you to move forward and take action and not give up. When you have hope, it gives you a different perspective. Hope looks at what things can be rather than just resigning to the way that things are. Hope looks to the future rather than being stuck in the past. It has been said that it isn't people with money or resources who ultimately change the world it's people whose hearts have been set on fire with hope you see that's even the story of the christian church that's what we're reading about here in the book of acts this whole story began with a group of discouraged disciples They were discouraged, but yet their discouragement was replaced with hope as a result of seeing Jesus risen from the dead and hearing Jesus tell them of all that God was going to do through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And even though they had no material resources, they changed the world and they led a revolution which continues on even to our day. See, hope is not just a feeling that you have. Hope is not positive thinking. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a vision of what can be. It is a confident expectation of coming good. And hope changes everything. When people get a sense of hope for their marriage or for getting healthy or for making a difference in some area, rather than giving up, they're filled with bold confidence and they're motivated to move forward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul puts hope alongside faith and love as the top three most important things that we need. So the question is, if hope is so important, then how do we get it? So that's our third one here. How do we get it? Now take a look at what happened to Paul in verse 11 and how Paul's discouragement was replaced with hope. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. There are three things to take note of in this verse which laid the foundation for how Paul's discouragement was replaced with hope and these same three things are the source for us for hope as well when we need it. First thing was this, the Lord stood by him. The second is God's work in our work and the third is a promise of the future. So first of all, the Lord stood by him. There is Paul, he's all alone in this Roman military barracks, this holding cell. He's discouraged, he's disappointed, he's feeling guilty like a failure. But during the dark night of his soul, Jesus stood by Paul. And Jesus' presence was so powerful that Paul could sense it. Even if Paul had messed up, God had not given up on him. The Lord stood by him that night. Even if everyone else in that city had forsaken him, Paul could be encouraged to know that Jesus would never forsake him. That's the promise that we have, by the way, that even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful because that is who he is and he cannot deny himself. Like Moses, like Elijah, who also felt that they had failed, who also felt that they were all alone, God was with them, God stood beside them and that's true for you as well. Maybe you've failed in the past. Maybe you've made mistakes. Maybe other people have turned away from you and you feel alone. You can find hope in knowing that God has not forsaken you, that he will stand by you because he is faithful, he is committed to you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. That was the first source of hope Jesus, the Lord, stood by him. Secondly, Paul's discouragement was turned to hope because the Lord encouraged him in something that is a source of hope for us too, and that is God's work in our work. Arguably, we could say that Paul did not do a perfect job there in Jerusalem in doing this uh, preaching of the gospel, but the Lord encouraged him by affirming that he had indeed testified about him in that city. See, Paul had come to Jerusalem with these huge expectations, but nothing worked out the way he thought it was going to. Nothing worked out the way he hoped it would, and here he is. He's discouraged, feeling like he should have, he could have done a better job. Maybe you can relate to that in the things you do. Maybe you feel that you're not doing as good of a job as you should have, or could have. Maybe you feel like you're not having the impact that you wish you were having. Maybe you feel like you're just kind of stumbling and bumbling through all of the things that you're attempting to do. Maybe it's at your workplace or with your children, uh, but you feel discouraged because you're not seeing the kinds of results from your efforts that you had hoped to see or expected to see. Rather than being discouraged, take hope in this. Take hope in knowing that God is indeed accomplishing his work through your work. That's the hope that he gave to Paul and it's important for us as well. Martin Luther spoke of what he called the masks of God and the fingers of God. These were his ways of describing how God accomplishes his work through our work. That that whether through our vocations or through raising our children or through service to others, God is invisibly and providentially accomplishing his work through our work. So whether you're a farmer or you're a doctor or you're an engineer or you're a children's ministry worker or a setup volunteer at church, God is accomplishing his work in the world through your work. And what that means is that we should seek to do these things with excellence because ultimately we're doing them unto the Lord and ultimately it's God's work. But it also means that it's ultimately God's work and he's committed to making sure that his work gets done and is accomplished. Furthermore, we know that when we speak God's words, we have the promise of, his, of the scriptures that they will not come back void. They will always accomplish what he wants them to accomplish. And so what that means is that there's always more going on than just what we see on the surface. There's, there's a spiritual element. There are things going on underneath. And that's why Paul says we should not lose heart because we know that in due season, if we continue doing good, we will reap if we don't give up. The third and final but perhaps most important factor which turned Paul's discouragement into hope and which is a source of hope for us as well is the promise of a future. The Lord tells Paul that as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you're also gonna testify about me in Rome. What that means is that until Paul gets to Rome, he's invincible, right? Because he's gonna get to Rome. That's what he just knows. I'll tell you what, that gives you a lot of hope. That tells you this isn't the end of the road, sitting here in this prison cell by yourself. There's more to come after this. There are good things that are gonna happen. God's not done with you. There's still a future ahead of you. There's something to look forward to, something more that's coming, and that gives him hope. Remember, hope is a forward-facing confidence. Like Paul, we too can have hope for this life, knowing that God has a plan for our lives, that he's working out, a plan which is ultimately for our good and for his glory. But even beyond that, there's a greater future hope that is promised to us, one which gives us ultimately a greater sense of hope because as Paul referred to earlier when he spoke to the Sanhedrin, this is what it's all about. It's about the hope of the resurrection. It's that sure hope that because Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, making a way for us to escape death, that if our faith is in him, even death is not the end of the road for us. It's just the first page in an endless book in which each chapter is more exciting than the one prior to it. It's this hope which gives us confidence. It's this hope which causes us not to lose heart. It's this hope which causes us to be of good cheer no matter what circumstances we face. And it is this hope which is ultimately the cure for discouragement, which motivates us to live and walk by faith today. Because you know, here's the thing. There was one who was very similar to Paul in many of the regards of the story we've read today. There was one who like Paul, although he had done nothing wrong, people turned against him. They wanted to kill him. But whereas Paul was, Paul's life was spared, his life was not. He was put to death. Whereas Paul was almost scourged by the Romans, this other one, he was scourged by the Romans. Like Paul, he also stood before the Sanhedrin and he was not treated fairly and justly. But unlike Paul, when he was hit, he did not strike back, he did not lash out, he remained silent like a sheep being led to the slaughter. Like Paul, this other man found himself all alone. But unlike Paul, rather than having the Lord stand beside him, for him the Father turned away from him because on the cross of Calvary he bore our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This other man, he knew no transgressions, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was placed the chastisement, which brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Like Paul, he loved those to whom he came. He loved them so much that he was willing to be cursed so that they could be saved, but unlike Paul, who only talked about it, he actually did it. His name was Jesus Ultimately, this story, this whole story is about him. He's the reason we can have hope. The truth is that apart from him and and what he did for us, there is no reason to have hope. You have every reason to be discouraged. See, the truth is that you and I, we are more broken, we're more lost, we're more sinful than we even realize, than we can even comprehend. We don't deserve for God to stand by us after all that we've done. But the good news of the gospel is that in spite of that, he does. He has chosen to stand by us because he loves us. He loves you. In fact, he loves you so much that he traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns so that you who deserve thorns eternally could receive eternal glory instead. It's because of him that you can have hope today. And it's by focusing on him. It's by focusing on what he has done for you and the implications of what that means for you in your past, in your present, in your future. That is what raises your hope quotient. The amount of hope that you have, that's what causes it to grow. This morning, I encourage you, focus your attention on him, the one who is greater than Paul, and what he has done for you. I encourage you, receive the gospel today whether for the first time in your life embracing Jesus or for the 500th or 1,000th time in your life, you need to do it over and over. Receive the gospel. And as you worship him, as we sing this last song, as you go from this place and live a life of worship to him, may you increasingly grow in hope as you come to understand more and more how much he loves you and all that he's done for you. Lord, we thank you that as we look at Paul and we see a man discouraged, we can relate to that. Lord, thank you that in you we have the ultimate hope. We have the ultimate cure for discouragement, hope of the future to come, hope that you will stand beside us, hope that you are in fact doing your work through our work. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in our lives and that today we say corporately as we pray together, yes, Lord, we receive the gospel. We receive what you did for us. Thank you, Lord, for bearing our sins. Thank you for giving us new life. Thank you for giving us a future and a hope. May these truths be alive in our hearts as we worship you and as we go from this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick,